you guys feel free to have a seat. Uh, this morning, we have the joy of sitting under the teaching of our discipleship pastor, Ryan Knapp. And he will be continuing uh, in our series in the book of 1 Kings. And so as we transition from worshiping through music to worshiping through the preaching of God's word, I want to invite you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 20 through 40 will be our text this morning. And I'll read that out loud. You can follow along in your copy of God's word. Uh, it'll be on the screens behind me as well. Again, that's 1 Kings chapter 18. We will begin in verse 20 and read all the way through 40. It says this. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even only I, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many and call upon the name of your God, put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, oh Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them saying, cry aloud for he is a God. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself or he's on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two sayas of seeds. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And then he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, 
Isaac and Israel. Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that it was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the book of Kishon and slaughtered them there. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word. And God, thank you that time and time and time again, you have shown up and proved that you are the one, the true and the only God, the creator and the sustainer of all things. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would be with Pastor Ryan as he serves you this morning, that he would be a messenger of your word. And Holy Spirit, that you would give us tender hearts to hear your word, that we might know you better. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Stephen. Um, as he said, my name is Ryan, and I am the discipleship pastor here. And I'm excited to uh, be here with you this morning and to study God's word with you. It's always a joy to be able to do that on a Sunday morning. Um, if, if you're in here and you follow college sports or you're a college sports fan in any way, what you know to be true is that the recruiting process is all over the place. Like It's all over the place. It's so chaotic. You've got student athletes who they commit to a certain school, but then they decommit and commit to another school, and then they decommit and commit to another school, and they change schools like they're changing their socks. You've got also not just on the athlete's part, it's the schools. What people don't really realize is, is part of the school's part as well. That for schools, they'll offer a bunch of student athletes, but then when they get the ones they kind of want, then they'll like revoke their offer from them. And the whole process is just, it's crazy. It's all over the place. There's a, a lack of commitment across the board. And it was no different back several years ago when I was in college. And something that these schools will try to do is they will have these recruiting official visits where they'll bring all their recruits or certain recruits to their campus to show and say, hey, this is what it's like to be here. This is our campus. This is what we have to offer. This is who we are. And this is what it will be like to play football or play whatever sport at our school. And they'll pair them up with current people on the team to host these athletes, to put their best foot forward, to show them what it's like, to um, make sure they have a good time, but then also to just see what these recruits are like. And back when I was in school, we had an official recruiting visit, and I got paired up with one of these new recruits and got to kind of see what went on at these visits. And for us, one of the first things we did for dinner that night is they took us to the Georgia Sports Hall of Fame, and they had this really nice dinner, um, and it was really, it was awesome. And then they took us to the theater room, and they, on the big screen, put up each of the recruits' highlight tapes, because who doesn't like seeing themselves on a big screen, hoping to kind of impress them? 
And, and throughout it, they'd show them all this gear. And it, we'd always laugh as players because we knew the recruits were coming because there'd be these tables with all this amazing gear that we never saw or never got um, and we never received. And yet they put it on display like, this is what you could have if you come here. Um, and the night culminated at the very end after all of this, uh, these events, it culminated in the football stadium under the lights where they lined the recruits up on the 50-yard line. And on the big screen, they showed this amazing just hype video of uh, some plays and highlights from uh, the football team. And so after this video, it just made you want to run and go play right there, run through a brick wall, ready to go. Our football coach stepped up and he gave a speech uh, that essentially said something like this. Hey, many of you have been riding the fence throughout this recruiting process. You've been kind of going back and forth and you have not fully committed. And tonight, what you've seen is you've seen who we are. You've seen what we're about. You've seen what it will be like to play under these lights on this field. And so tonight is the night where you can commit to be a part of what we're doing. If you will step across this line, you can commit fully to us and stop riding the fence. And I hope some of you will do that tonight. He said, but if you, for those of you who choose not to, that's fine. But what you need to understand is you might not have a spot on this team tomorrow because we're moving forward. It's time to commit. And inevitably, we had several guys, several recruits who stepped over that line, committed to be a part of our team. My recruit did not, so I must have did a poor job of hosting him. But they, several guys committed and said, hey, we're done riding for this. We're committing to be a part of this program. We've seen who you are, what you're about. We're committing to you. Now, here's why I bring that up. In the passage what that Pastor Stephen just read, that's exactly what's happening. The people of Israel have been riding the fence and Elijah says, hey, none of this. It's time for you to fully commit to the true God. No more play in both sides. It's time for you to step across the line and fully commit to him. And so that's where we're going this morning. That's what we're talking about. Um, our passage was in, in 1 Kings chapter 18. And so before we kind of walk through that, I want to give us kind of a backdrop to what's happening leading up to it. Right now we have this king called Ahab, and Ahab is a wicked king. We find out that he's done more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any king before him. And he's gone so far as to marry this wicked woman named Jezebel, whose name is synonymous with evil. Like even in our culture today, we will use that name as calling someone who is evil and twisted and wicked. And so he, he and Jezebel led Israel astray into evil, into wickedness, into the worship of the false god Baal. But then in chapter 17, we see God raises up a prophet, a man named Elijah. And Elijah's name, the, the very meaning of his name is the Lord is God. That's his name, that's his purpose, that's what he is setting out to do to make sure all the world knows that the Lord is God. And so God raises him up and commands him saying, hey, go and pray that a drought would come upon the land. And what Pastor Will told us last week is this is a direct attack on the false god Baal. Because Baal was seen as a fertility god and was 
directly connected in the, the eyes of his worshipers with rain and storms. Because um, if you pleased Baal, if he was happy with you, he would send rain and your crops would flourish. There would be uh, flourishing among your crops and would bring fertility and even connected to life itself. And so when God commands Elijah, hey, pray so that there's no rain, what he's saying is, hey, I want the people to see who's really in control here. So Elijah prays, there's this drought. God supernaturally actually provides for Elijah and then he finds himself with this widow who's in a distant land and God's supernaturally providing for him and the widow and her son. But then the unthinkable happens and the widow loses her son. He passes away, he dies. And yet God, once again, demonstrating his power through Elijah brings the boy to life. And yet again, another attack on Baal, because again, Baal was tied to fertility and life itself. And what God says, hey, you don't have control over life. I'm the one who's in control over all things. And so he raises the widow, our widow's son, and stays with them. And then at the beginning of chapter 18, our, before our passage this morning, what you find is after three years of this drought, God goes to Elijah and says, hey, you need to go find Ahab because we're going to end this thing once and for all. Go and find Ahab. And he goes out, he sets out to find Ahab. Ahab is actually on this mission with one of his officers named Obadiah, who is a worshiper of God. And we know this because Jezebel was so wicked and so evil that she actually set out to murder the prophets of God. But Obadiah, being a worshiper of God, used his influence, his power to hide away a hundred prophets of the true God. And so he fears the Lord and he and Ahab are out looking for just pockets of fertile land to where maybe there are horses and their mules, maybe not all of them will die. And Elijah comes across Obadiah and he says, hey, um, you need to go get Ahab. And so he runs and go gets Ahab and Ahab comes and sees Elijah and he says, you troubler of Israel. Because in his mind, he's like, this is the guy that is upset Baal and Baal's not sending rain. You troubler of Israel. Then Elijah looks at him. He says, no, no, no. You're the one who's the troubler of Israel. You have led these people away to this false God worship and we're done with this. So I want you to get all the prophets of Baal and of Asherah, who she was a goddess who was kind of connected there with Baal. I want you to get them together and I want you to go to Mount Carmel and we're going to settle this once and for all. And that's where our passage picks up um, that Pastor Stephen read. And so what I want to do for us this morning, and as I want to walk us through this story, and then at the end, I want to show us how we can apply this to our day-to-day lives. So let's walk through this passage. So it starts in verse 20, and he gets together these prophets of Baal, and there's 450 of Baal and 400 of Asherah, and he goes to Mount Carmel. Uh, Now, Mount Carmel um, is a place where actually Pastor Kevin had the opportunity to visit a few years ago. And so we've got some pictures on the screen of that. And what Pastor Kevin was telling me is that it was really cool, this setting, because you could see it was the perfect place for what was going down. What you can't fully tell in the pictures is it actually forms a sort of amphitheater, like this natural stage for what was about to happen. And it was something that overlooked kind of over Israel. You can see for, for miles and miles. 
And so this is the setting. So this is what I want you to have in your mind as we talk through this story. He gets the people together. He gets, has the prophets there. He's got the people of Israel there all watching to see what happens. And what he tells them is he says, hey, no more limping between two different opinions. That word limping, it, it refers to, yes, this physical ailment in your walk, like when you're walking and your gait is, is hindered in some way by, by maybe some disability. And so it's like a physical ailment. But then also it's used in the Exodus story when the, the angel of God comes to the house, he sees the blood painted on the woodpost. He said, I want you to pass over that household. And that's the same word there. It's to pass over or to spring over. And so the, the picture is the people of Israel were saying, yeah, we love God. He's, he's our God and they kind of serve him. But yet we kind of love Baal and Baal is the one who's going to give us fertility and going to give us crops and make sure that there's prosperity in the nation. But then we love Yahweh and we love God, but then we love Baal. And you see them kind of bouncing back and forth, limping between two opinions. And Elijah says, no, 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 no. We're not doing this anymore. There will be no more limping between two opinions. And, and the reason why is God has called them to wholehearted, full devotion to himself. We see in Exodus chapter 20, uh, verses 2 through 6, which is the beginning of the Ten Commandments, this is what God tells the people of Israel. He says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So God says, hey, I want you to commit fully to me. You're not gonna worship any other gods. You're not gonna fashion for yourself these metal images or these carved images of these created things that you make and worship them as gods. No, you are gonna commit to me fully. And when you paint this on the backdrop of what just happened, it's amazing. The people of Israel had been enslaved and oppressed in Egypt for hundreds and hundreds of years. And yet God, with his mercy, miraculously set them free from Egypt, brought them out from Egypt, out of slavery, out of oppression, into the wilderness. He says, I am going to be your God. And it's not because they were a mighty nation and there was something that they had to offer God. It was, in fact, the exact opposite. God says, I'm choosing you because I love you. I'm setting you apart. Even though there's nothing of you that, is, that it warrants this, I am setting you apart and saying, you are my people. I am committing to you. I will be your God and you will be my people. And so when you look at this and see what happens, it's just astounding that the God of the universe who's worthy of all worship most certainly is worthy of their worship, that while they were impressed and enslaved, they cried out and he heard their cries. He set them apart. He chose to be with them and to love them. And so, of course, he deserves their worship. But then two, the worship of this God is what's best for them. 
that undivided worship of him and devotion to him is what's going to bring life and flourishing for this people. Anything else, chasing any other false gods, is going to bring nothing but pain and brokenness. That this God has cut a covenant with them and said, hey, I want you to commit to me forsaking all others. It's the image that we have in our marriages, right? That we are committing to one another, that the spouse says, you are mine and I am yours, forsaking all others. That's the picture here of what God does with Israel. And yet, if you read scripture, you know that they don't do this. That in the wilderness itself, like right after all this, during this whole thing taking place, they are fickle at best in their worship of God. And then when God's still committing to them and bringing them into the promised land in Joshua 24, 15, as they're on the cusp of the promised land, Joshua says, hey, choose today who you're going to serve. If the Lord is God, serve him. But if you want to go after the gods of these inhabitants of the land that we're about to overtake, then go after them. But as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. And the people of Israel answer with a resounding, yes, we will serve the Lord. We are committed to him. And yet when you read, it does not take long for Israel to forsake their God and chase the gods of the inhabitants of the land. And that's the pattern through their whole history that they chase all these false gods. They run after all these gods. And that's what's happening here is they're serving Baal and they're trying to serve God. And they're bouncing back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And Elijah says, no, we're done with this. Choose today who you're going to serve. If the Lord is God, serve him. And if Baal is God, then serve him. And he start, the people say, yeah, makes sense to us. We can set up the, this contest that Elijah sets up. Uh, Elijah says, hey, you're going to get two bulls. The prophets of Baal will have one. I'll have the other. They'll build an altar. I'll build an altar. And then we will cry out to our gods. And whichever God answers with fire, that's the true God. And the people agree. They're like, okay, let's see what happens. And the prophets of Baal kind of had to feel like they were on home field advantage. They had this kind of thoughts of, okay, if we worship the God who's connected with rain and storms and lightning and the winner is the God who answers with fire. They're like, yeah, we got this. It makes sense. But then we'll see what happens. Because starting in 20, verse 25, the contest begins. And Baal goes first. The prophets of Baal go first. And Elijah says, hey, I want you to pick your bull because I don't want there to be any kind of doubt on what actually happens here. I don't want you to say, oh, well, our bull wasn't good enough. Like, you pick yours, and then I'll take what's left over. And so they uh, prepare their altar. They sacrifice their bull on the altar. And then they begin calling out. And they call out. And they call out. And they call out. And they call out. But there's no answer. From morning until noon, they cry out to Baal to answer them. And yet he's silent. There's no voice, there's no answer. And they start ramping up the intensity and it says they start limping, there's that word again, they're limping around the altar. It was like a ritualistic kind of dancing, trying to awaken their God, awaken Baal to, to listen to their cries. And so they call out and they call out and they call out and there's no answer. And then I just love what happens next. Like this is amazing. Elijah engages into some spiritual trash talk. I don't know if you caught that. He's like, 
hey, maybe you should cry louder because he's probably musing himself. He's probably in this deep meditation um, and that's why he can't hear you. Or, you know, maybe he just stepped away for a second. That's, he's, he'll be back, don't worry. Like, just keep calling out to him. Or maybe it wasn't just for a second. He's on a long journey. You picked the wrong day. That's why if you call loud enough, maybe he'll hear you. Or, oh, I know, your God's asleep. He's, he slept through his alarm. Call out louder, and then maybe he will answer you. And the irony of it all is they truly believe that these things could be true about their God, that their God really could be asleep and unable to hear them. And so they start calling out even louder and louder and more fervently, and then they result to this sad desperation of a ritual that was a part of their custom, and they start cutting themselves and piercing themselves and letting their blood just flow and shed onto the ground. And, and the heart behind this is maybe this will bend the heart of our God towards us. Just maybe if he sees us harming ourselves and sees our blood falling, just maybe we will get some compassion and pity from our God. Maybe that will be the thing that awakens him from his slumber. And so they call out and they call out and they call out. They dance around and dance around. They cut themselves and shed their blood. And yet there's no answer. In verse 29, it says, there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Baal and his prophets had failed. And so now it's Elijah's turn. Elijah starts in verse 30. He, he draws the people near to himself and they, he calls them together. They prepare the altar of the Lord and they build it back up. There used to be an altar at one point, but it, it had been torn down. And so he builds up the altar. They place 12 stones representing the tribe of Israel. And then it, and they, they prepare the sacrifice, put it there. And then it gets pretty weird. He's like, hey, um, while you're at it, can you just dig a trench around this altar? You're like, What? And so they start digging this trench deep enough to hold about four gallons. And so they build the trench and then they start pouring these jars of water onto the sacrifice and the altar. And he says, pour it again and again. And it is so soaked with water that the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, everything's saturated with water and so much that the trench itself fills with water. And we look at this and we're like, this seems a bit counterintuitive. Like if the whole point of, of this contest is the altar supposed to catch fire, uh, Elijah seems to be kind of stacking the deck against himself here. And that's the point. Elijah wants there to be no mistake as to what's about to happen. He doesn't want there to be any kind of excuse of, oh, it was just really dry wood and there was a spark and it was just coincidence. He wants to leave no room for doubt as to what was about to happen. And so Elijah prays, you notice these other, these prophets, they call out and they call out and they call out. Elijah prays this somewhat simple prayer that essentially says, hey, I want them to know that you, Yahweh, are God and that I am your servant. And after he prays that prayer, fire falls. It consumes the sacrifice, the altar, it consumes the wood and the stones and the dust. It even drinks up the water in the trench. It is a decisive victory for the Lord. There is no mistake of who really is in charge here. There's no mistake of where the true power lies. 
The people of Israel begin to cry out, the Lord is God, the Lord is God, which by the way, remember, is Elijah's name. They're chanting his name because that's his purpose, is the, he wants them to know and see who the true God is, to commit to him. And, and in light of this victory, they put to death these wicked prophets of Baal who had led Israel astray. And then right after this in the following verses, what you find is, is Elijah looks at Ahab and he says, hey, it's about to rain. You just better be ready for it. And Elijah prays, and then you can remember those pictures from uh, Mount Carmel. It was like, it says a cloud, like a man's hand came across, and then all of a sudden the drought was ended. God was clearly victorious. So the question then becomes for us, what do we do with this? For them, it was, hey, stop worshiping Baal and worship the one true God. Commit fully to him. So what do we do with this? Because my guess is there's probably none of you here, I'm going on a limb and say this, there's probably none of you here who are going to go home and going to go find a bull and then build an altar and then sacrifice the bull on the altar and start dancing around and cutting yourself, calling out to Baal, saying, hey, bring rain or bring fire for this. My guess is none of you are going to go and do this. So what do we do with this? Well, make no mistake, even though we do not worship Baal in this way in our context, we most certainly do worship false gods in our day-to-day lives. It just looks a lot more normal than we realize. We have the tendency to still worship and make idols in our lives. In fact, John Calvin says that man's heart our man's hearts are idol factories. Man's hearts are idol factories that we are very good at taking good things and turning them into God things. That we are very good in our hearts to elevating things to the, pro- to the place where only God belongs and those things getting the full weight of our worship, our full trust, our full love. We look to these things to give us what only God can truly give us. Tim Keller, in his, he wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods, which is a really good book that talks about modern day uh, idols and idolatry and false god worship. And in it, he says, anything can be an idol and everything has been an idol. Anything can be an idol and everything has been an idol. See, a false god for us is anything that we take and we elevate to the place of God in our lives. Think about what the people of Israel were doing with Baal. They were saying, hey, you are in control of the fertility of our crops and the flourishing of our crops, of the prosperity and financial prosperity for us. And so we're calling out to you so that you can bring us prosperity so that if we have prosperity, then we will have a sense of security. And so we're calling out to you because we know that you are where security is going to lie instead of calling out to the one true God and finding security there. Or we're calling out to you for prosperity because that's where we're gonna find comfort. That's where we're gonna find pleasure because we're gonna have the means and the resources to give ourselves what we want and what we need. And don't we do this with many things in our lives? Think about a job. That a job is a good thing. A thing that God calls us to do is is to work hard. But we can easily take this good thing and turn it into a God thing. We can look to a job and say, hey, if I work hard, then my bank account will be full. And if my bank account is full, then I've got security. 
that's how I'm going to be protected for me and for my family. As opposed to saying, hey, God, you are the place of my security. That you are the place for my provision. That, yes, a job is a way that you provide for me. And yet, even if I were to lose my job, even if my bank account were small, God, I'm still trusting in you for provision because you are my ultimate source of security. Or we we look at a job and say, hey, that's where I find purpose. That's where I find meaning and value in my life. And so when I have my job, I feel fulfilled and full of pleasure and of joy. Instead of saying, hey, God, you are my provision. You are my place of joy. You are the thing that fills me up. And a job is an avenue through which I can live out this purpose. But even if I were to lose this job, God, you are still constant. You see, we are really good at taking good things and making them God things. Tim Keller tells a story in that book of a woman named Anna who her doctors told her that she would probably never be able to have children. She she wanted them desperately, and yet she was told she was probably not going to be able to have them. And yet, uh, to her doctor's surprise, she was able, she got married and she had two kids. But what Keller says is in her striving to give them the perfect life, to to give them everything that she thought they needed and wanted to to make them the center of her life, she made them impossible to enjoy. That she loved them so much and centered her life so much around them that she was filled with anxiety and with fear of making sure everything was perfect for them which then led her to be unbelievably overprotective and controlling. And in putting the weight of her worship on her children, she crushed them, crushed herself and her family and made everyone, including herself, miserable. Why? Because they were never intended to bear that kind of weight. Keller says, hey, the issue is not that she loved her kids too much. We're called to love our children. We're supposed to overflow in our love for our children. The issue is not that she loved her kids too much. The issue is that she loved God too little in relationship to her kids. They had become an idol. And Anna's story is not unique to her. It might not be kids for you, but it's likely something else. We have the tendency to make good things and elevate them to the place of God in our lives. Things that we try to place the weight of our expectations, our hopes, our desires, our security, but they were never meant to bear that kind of weight. We call out to them and call out to them. We try to do the right religious rituals to do the right thing so that we can please them and get what we want from them. We even harm ourselves and others in our misplaced worship of them, but they were never meant to bear our worship. And for some, it's, it's, it's full devotion away from God, saying, hey, I don't want anything to do with him, absolutely. But for many, especially in our context, I think we can look a lot more like Israel than we like to admit. That we like to serve God, but then we bounce around to an idol. That Jesus is a part of our lives, but he is not all of our life. That we look to Jesus and say, yeah, I trust you, but I think I need this thing to bring me security. I trust you, Jesus, but 
my true joy is over here. And we limp back and forth, back and forth. And my guess is there may be some of you here this morning that are feeling the weight of this. You might not even realize it, but you are worn down and you are tired. And what you're actually seeing in your life is the impotence of your idol. The emptiness of this thing you've tried to make God, the thing that is unable to bring you true joy and true peace and true contentment because you're placing your worship where it doesn't belong. You're calling out to it and calling out to it and calling out to it, and yet there is no answer from it because it's no true God. God describes it in multiple places in scripture and uses the imagery of their idols. He says, hey, you are carving these metal images and these wooden images to be these creatures or even making them look like man and yet you're worshiping them and calling out to them. But they've got eyes, but they can't see. They've got ears, but they can't actually hear you. They've got mouths, but they cannot speak. They have hands, but they have no power to save you. They are not true gods. My call or the call of the pastors this morning is that we would see who the true God really is. That we would stop limping between two things and we would choose today that if Yahweh, if the Lord is God, then we serve him. And if anything else is God, then we serve it. And yet I hope what we see in this passage is that nothing else is God that the Lord is the only one that is worthy of our worship, that we should fully commit to him. Why? Because he deserves it. And when we worship him wholeheartedly, that's what's best for us. I hope that you've seen the nature of the Lord. See, the, the prophets of Baal, they called out and they came and drew near to Baal, and yet he was nowhere to be found. But God promises in James 4 and other places that if we draw near to him, God draws near to us. The prophets of Baal, they called out to their God and yet he was completely absent. But what God promises is his presence for his people. The prophets of Baal, they cut themselves and pierced themselves and shed their blood in hopes of bending the heart of their God toward themselves in hopes of warranting the pity and compassion of their God. And yet I want you to hear the heart of the God of scripture. In Isaiah 53, it says this, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Do you see the difference there? These false gods that they're crying out to, they were cutting themselves and trying to bend their hearts to compassion, but what God says is, I love you, and so I died for you. I was pierced for you. My blood was shed for you. You couldn't earn my love and you couldn't earn my compassion and yet you have it. 
that I loved you so much that I came, I bled, I died for you, and that this God demonstrated his power once again, that he did not stay dead. He raised Jesus from the grave in victory over sin, in victory over death. And the prophets of Baal, they called out and they called out and they called out and they had no answer. But what God promises us in Romans chapter nine is that all who call upon the name of the Lord will find salvation. These false gods, they have eyes but can't see, ears but can't hear, mouths but can't speak, hands but they have no power to save. But God says, I have eyes and I see you. I've got ears and I hear you calling out. My mouth has spoken and it has spoken the final word in Jesus and my hands are mighty to save. Come to me. I don't know about you, but I wanna worship a God like that. That is a God and the God that is worthy of all praise and all worship. He's the only one that deserves it. Any other God will leave us empty and disappointed and broken. He is the only one that brings true security and true life. And so there may be someone in here this morning who has never turned and trusted in God for salvation. You've been chasing these false gods and hopes to try to fill that void in your heart, to find security, to find salvation in some way, and they are powerless to actually save you. But what I hope you've seen is that the one true God is powerful over all things. That this God loves you so much that he came, he bled, he died for you. He was wounded so that you might find healing. Turn from any other idol and worship this God. Repent of your sin and commit to him fully and devote your life and worship him. He's worthy of it and that is what's best for you. I hope and I pray that you'll do that. For many others of you, you are followers of Jesus. You've had this decisive moment in your life where you've turned from sin and trusted in Jesus for salvation. Your future is secure. Nothing can take you from the hand of God. But what you need to understand, what we all know to be true, is that our hearts are still prone to wander. That we're still prone to take good things and elevate them and try to make them God things. But what you need to understand is these things are empty and they're powerless. They're not actually going to bring you satisfaction. That the only way we can actually enjoy the good gifts from God is by properly placing our worship on him. Your job is a good gift from God, but it is a lousy God. Your kids are a good gift from God, but they are lousy gods. They will disappoint you. They will fail you. All these good things, they're good gifts from God, but they are lousy gods. And so what we would do well to do as followers of Jesus is continually sift our hearts. Say, God, where is my heart not fully set on you? Tim Keller offers several questions that we can ask ourselves which are helpful to say, okay, what gets my thoughts? Where does my mind wander and go to? What, what fills my mind? Where, what gets my hopes and my dreams and my expectations? What makes me fearful and anxious more than anything else? What elicits the extreme emotions in my heart? What makes me more angry, more sad than anything else? Where does my money go? Jesus tells us is where your treasure is, your heart is also. And as we sift and ask ourselves these questions honestly, what we'll see is where our hearts are 
prone to find our worship somewhere else and misplace our worship. And what I hope we will then do is look to the only one who is worthy of our worship. The one who came, who was pierced for our transgressions, who was wounded so that we might find healing, that we would see his great love for us and see his glory and his majesty and that we would redirect our worship where it truly belongs. That's my hope for us this morning.